and welcome to another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America. I'm your host, Ray Gerard, whether you like it or not. And uh, with me in studio today, Mr. Bob Hennigas. Bob, welcome again. Thanks for having me, Ray. It's good to be back. So today our program is going to be entitled Forgetting How to Love. We're going to be talking about a little boy in the United Kingdom who went to school one day and ended up having to leave school with hypothermia because his uh, teachers decided that would be best for all concerned. At least, well, I, guess, now I know they didn't want to give him hypothermia, but they made a decision which resulted in hypothermia, uh, and it was arguably for the best of all concerned. Well, we might just have a little bit of an issue to pick with that. But this is St. Paul's Letters to America. This is the program that says, hey, what if St. Paul were alive today? What if St. Paul heard about this little boy in the UK and why he had to uh, go to school and get hypothermia and whether or not he was being shown sufficient love or not? What would perhaps he write about that if he was going to write a letter that um, people in the United Kingdom or the people in America could read? Well, if you're wondering what St. Paul would write to America today, you came to the right place because we're going to tell you exactly what he would have written. And we know, and we can, we can say that we know what he would have written because the things that he did write are timeless. If they have the truth, they are timeless. The truth does not change. And so that's what we examine. We apply some of the things he wrote to issues like this one with this little boy in the United Kingdom, we say, hey, was Paul on to something? Uh, would the advice that he could give us, uh, would it help us in that situation? Would it help these people understand how to deal with uh, a four-year-old boy in the situation that they had to encounter? Um, you know, would it, you know would, it, would it help? Would the same advice that he gave before help today? Would it, in fact, be timeless? If, if in fact, it would help, uh, it is timeless, and if it is timeless, then it is true. So that's uh, that's what we do here on this this program. And uh, so perhaps we'll uh, start off with our reading from St. Paul. And Bob, if you'd be so kind, perhaps you could uh, read that for us. You bet. When I was a child, I used to talk as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. At present, we see indistinctly, as in a mirror, but then face to face. At present, I know partially, then I shall know fully, as I am fully known. So faith, hope, love remain, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, what does this have to do with this four-year-old boy in Britain? Well, we'll get to that. First, let's explain to you um, what, uh, what we're talking about. We mentioned this four-year-old boy who happened to get, catch hypothermia. Well, the boy's name is Mason Wilby. And he went to school. He went to, I forget, I don't have the name of the school right here. Oh, yeah, Wigton Infant School. And I guess maybe some kind of a preschool because he was only four years old. And um, when he went to school, he happened to have a, a mild, uh, a little cough. He had a mild cold, so he had a little cough. Well, the, uh, the, the administrators at the school thought, well, perhaps he's got COVID. So they decided to um, segregate him from the rest of the class 
And then they decided uh, that they had to segregate him from the adults in the school. He had to be segregated from everybody in the school uh, because the threat was sufficient uh, to warrant, uh, warrant that kind of reaction. Well, they, uh, to find a place that they could do that meant that they had to put him outside in a shed, an unheated shed. They took a four-year-old boy and basically put him into, what do they they call it when you go to prison and you're you're in isolation? I mean, uh, Solitary. Solitary. They put him into solitary confinement, a four-year-old boy. So now you're in a shed. I don't know if it had a window or not. You're all alone. You're cold. I mean, you're thinking, you're thinking what? I mean, the the, the grown-ups decided to do this to you? Are you... Uh, are you distraught? Are you worried? Are you are you fearful? Um, you know, and you're four years old. You know, the world, everything in the world is, everything is new to you. And when they, when adults do this to you, you got to be thinking, what did I do wrong? What I don't know what a five year old would be thinking, but it it can't be good. You uh, you'd be in large trouble if you were running a prison and you did this to an inmate. Oh. I, I did, there, there'd be screaming at the gates, right? Cruel you, and unusual cruel, punishment. You, you I bet. mean, you put somebody out in the freezing, and it was freezing cold. And this boy did, uh, well, anyways. Uh, anyway, so the school decided that, well, what they needed to do is they needed to call the mother. They, they thought perhaps, you know, maybe the boy wouldn't have to be out there that long. They called the mother to have her come and, and pick up her child. Well, it took some time for the mother to reach the school because this family didn't have funds. She didn't have a car. She had to rely on public transport. That's all the news report that I came uh, that I found says. So I don't know if that means a bus. I mean, you know, maybe not. Maybe didn't have money for cab fare, so maybe had to take a buses. Well, anyways, she finally arrived at the school after some time, and uh, she said, "Okay, so where's my son?" Well, they took her outside. They took her outside to a shed. I don't know. Can you imagine just, you know, you're here to pick up your child. Yeah, come with me. And then you walk outside. And you're like, well, where are we going? And then to a shed. When, she, when they opened this, this shed, she found her son in such a state. He was shivering like mad. His hands were red. He was shivering so bad he couldn't talk. Um, there are pictures of him where he's got, you know, um, you know, fluid coming out of his, his nose. It's almost like freezing. I, I mean, he, I mean, he couldn't talk. He was shivering so bad. The same idea is if you'd go, if they had taken her to the kitchen, and opened up the freezer, <laughs> and, and pull, a, pull, pulled a, a child out of there, huh? So they uh, took the boy to the doctor. The doctor confirmed the boy had hypothermia. And that an ambulance needed to be called. And so they took him by ambulance to the hospital. And eventually then, as a reaction, his temperature soared. He had, imagine that. He, imagine that. The boy, you know, having a, you know, having a fever. But uh, eventually the, the boy uh, recovered and, and should be fine. The school put out a statement. <laughs> Get a load of this. Uh, so Jeff Norman, the head teacher at the school, told Uh, news outlet. The priority for everyone in Wigdon Infant School has always been the well-being of the children. The well-being of the children. So what they really mean is 
the well-being of all the children who didn't have a slight cough, not the well-being of Mason. So it's basically deciding, what is the mindset that goes through school staff? When you put a, a child, you're so afraid of the cough that a child has, that maybe he's got COVID, that you have to put him outside into this, into this solitary confinement type situation. Obviously, you're thinking, well, you know, we can't spread this. What if he's got the coronavirus and it's a threat to everybody in the school and it's a serious threat? So it's obviously a uh, sort of a mathematical calculation. It's the needs, as they perceive it, of the many over this child. This child had to be put through um, uh, dire – had to be put into dire conditions. I mean, he – you know, he had to suffer, basically. He suffered. And they, they didn't have an alternative to this, Ray? I, well, it's we're hard getting, for we're me. Into okay. We're right. into that. I can't imagine this being the only outlet. So this child had to, was ordered to suffer for the good of the many. Um, and anyway, um, then uh, the, uh, this head teacher uh, did add that following the incident, the school had reviewed their approach. Um, and now, uh, for school, for children who require isolation, they will use a room adjacent to the school office. Well, at least it has heat. And, uh, pupils, um, will always have a member of the staff with them. So that's what they decided on rethinking this, which is good. Wouldn't, wasn't there a story in the scriptures about, a shepherd in this exact situation? I think you have a story in mind. <laughs> there's, there's a wonderful story that I have in mind, which is a shepherd has 100 sheep and one comes up missing, lost. And the shepherd would go and leaves the 99 and goes to find the one. And there is much rejoicing when the one is found, the one lost sheep. You know, and if I think of that as a businessman, which I, I was for a big hunk of my life before I was teaching, I might think that Shepard was just a little bit nuts. There's 99 to protect, and you left them unprotected to go find this one. Yet that's what Jesus told us. That was the right thing to do, to go protect that one, that that is what we are to do, and then rejoice greatly when the one is found. It seems like this story is almost identical where you've got a whole bunch of kids and they're all too important for this one. And so we're just going to isolate him and, and keep him out. I, um, I just don't, un don't understand it. I, I, it. It seems almost incomprehensible to do this to a child. It does seem cruel. I mean, there's, it seems like there's not really a, another word that is as fitting as cruel. Um, but cruelty is okay, obviously, if you're trying to serve a, a greater need. Apparently, you know, I mean, they, these school administrators had good intentions. Um, so, you know, what, what's, what's the proper way to go here? Were these, I mean, these school administrators obviously have rethought their, their plan and they, they changed their procedures. Um, so it seems clear that, you know, um, the better way to go <laughs> is not to do what they did, not to subject this kid to this cruelty. 
But what led them to think, you know, along the lines that the, that they did in the first place? Um, you know, and, and what's this got to do with this reading that we gave from St. Paul? When I was a child, I used to talk and think as a child, reason as a child. And then later, he puts aside childish things. So if we apply that to this situation, how should we look at this question that the school administrators had before them? To look at what they should do with this boy who they thought you know, could have had COVID, um, what would it be to look at that, that issue as a child or as somebody who no longer thinks and reasons as a child? What's the, what's the better way? The better way is love. The answer is always love. And if you're not answering questions with love, you are straying from the truth. How can we say that? Well, St. Paul continues, at present we see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. Face to face with who? Face to face with the one who the gospel says is love. Um, at present, I know partially. Later, you know, I shall know fully as I am fully known. What's he talking about? Knowing fully. Knowing fully. In the presence of God, who is love. Um, this is the experience and the encounter that he's talking about. And if we're not sure, he tells us. So faith, hope, love remain these three, but the greatest, love. And this passage follows a long uh, dissertation on love. Uh, you're probably familiar with it. It is often, 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 it's probably the most frequently used passage at weddings. Um, love is patient, love is kind, etc., etc. Um, this is all about love. To see clearly is to see with love. That is what St. Paul is saying. If we see, and, and so did these people see with love? If they saw, what kind of love? I mean, when the mother arrives, uh, surely we would think that the mother has love for her child. When the mother arrives and finds her son outside, alone, locked up in a, in a shed, shivering to the point where he can't even utter words clearly, what would she be feeling? A person with a mother's love. I mean, obviously, I mean, her heart must have just been breaking. Um, and so, you know, when you entrust your children to other people, you hope that they're going to look at your child with the same kind of, of love or something at least with that kind of love in mind. Um, and so it seems that the reason this happened is because there's a lack of love. If you really felt love, this would not happen. And I think that's recognized when they adopted a, a, a new procedure that's not going to subject these people to cruelty. If you subject people to cruelty, you are not acting out of love. I mean, it's, I think that's, that's pretty simple and straightforward. So why do they do this? It's this idea, why do they do this? Well, it's this idea of 
the good of the many. The good of the many. The good of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Oh, where have I heard that before? Actually, I heard that in a Star Trek movie. Now, Star Trek was an interesting television series. Um, and it examined, it was as interesting as a TV series because it examined a lot of moral and ethical issues and dilemmas. Um, and when uh, they started making movies, because there was such demand for Star Trek to continue, the first movie they made was The Wrath of Khan in 1982. And early in the movie, Spock says something about logic dictates, logic dictates the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And then later on, when the ship and all the people on board are threatened with an explosion and the only way to avoid it is for Spock to go into a highly radioactive chamber and basically something along the lines of flipping a switch, um, you know, uh, he does this and he saves the ship. But of course, the problem is now he's going to die. He gave his life. He sacrificed his life um, for, uh, for the ship. And he tells uh, his, his friend and his captain, uh, Captain Kirk, he tells him, don't grieve, Admiral. It is logical. The needs of the many outweigh, and then Kirk finishes it, the needs of the few. Um, and so it's logical. It makes logical sense. Okay, so then Star Trek tells us if we're going to use our cultural uh, teacher, uh, if we give Star Trek that kind of accolade, um, if we use Star Trek as a cultural teacher, um, I guess the conclusion is Vulcan logic is the way to go. But it doesn't end there. The next movie that was made that came out two years later was The Search for Spock. Like it's all good movies, you know, uh, good guy, you know, I mean, he's not really dead. He's like, uh, when, when who, what is it, when who shot J.R. or something, you know, not really dead. Um, and so the ship, uh, um, Kirk and the crew members, they actually, I think, if I recall, they, they actually steal a ship to go back to where um, Spock, the dead but not dead Spock was deposited, the planet that he was deposited on. Uh, they go back there, but they need a ship, so they steal a ship. But when doing that, they all, because, of course, now subject themselves to the loss of career, criminal penalties, all the rest of it. I mean, they're pirates. But they do it anyway. So after Spock is now restored and alive again, he asks Kirk why the crew saved him. And Kirk answers, because the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. They all sacrificed for the needs of the one. Aha. Well, now we've got a very different kind of answer. Which one of these two answers works? And can we find an answer? Still referring to our cultural teacher, Star Trek. And the answer is yes, we can. Because they make another movie another two years later. And there, Spock's mother who is human, by the way, asks uh, Spock whether he still believes that by logic the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Well, he says yes. It's logical. He's a logical kind of guy. Vulcans like that. Well, she tells him, but she's human. She's not Vulcan. So she tells him, 
Well, then you were here because, and that was another other thing. Okay, you've got a you've got a biracial effect kind of marriage. Uh, this human woman marries a Vulcan man, so you got a mixed marriage in the 1960s. Ooh, big thing. Um, that's just you know. I mean, they examined a lot of cultural issues on the show. Anyway, uh, then she tells him, "Well, then you are here because of a mistake. Mistake. You're alive because of a whoops. Because your friends have given their future to save you." Then later in the film, and here comes the answer, another crew member, Chekhov, gets in trouble. And Spock insists that the crew save him, even at the risk of not just jeopardizing the ship, but this time the mission that the ship has, they're the only ones who have this uh, uh, possibility, to save the Earth from some uh, very immediate and pressing threat of destruction. They're the sole chance for the Earth to survive. And now Spock is insisting that they risk the ship and the chance for the Earth to be saved by the ship, all for this one guy, Chekhov. Doesn't make any sense. Um, so Kirk asks. I mean, Kirk's going to do it, but he asks Bob. And he, he, you know, they do do it. So there's your answer right there. But anyways, Kirk asks, is this the logical thing to do? And Spock answers him, no, but it is the human thing. Well, now what does that mean? What does that mean? Oh, that's easy. That's, that's another word for love. The only reason why, I mean, it doesn't make any logical sense. The only reason why you're going to risk so much, so much, not just 100, not just 99 sheep, Bob, but the entire earth, the, the, the crew, the ship, the earth, for one person, only reason um, it's not logical. You can't explain it with logic. It's it, it's love. There's many instances, Ray, that that I think of that go along or or sort of help us answer this question. For for one, um, somebody of my age is well in tune with what happened on September 11th, many many years ago, where you had people running and screaming from the buildings as this event occurred. And you had firemen and police officers running into, toward and into the building. They, that's not logical. You see the building coming down, collapsing, an absolute disaster occurring, yet you put your own life, right, the lives of your children, the lives of your spouse, all at risk in order to go help others, those that are left in the I think we as human beings feel that way. We feel that it's, it's the right thing to do to go help others, to take those risks even with our own life. And certainly police officers, uh, fire, firemen, military never get the credit for the things that they do. We, we run them down and we should not because they are putting themselves at risk routinely. That's the human thing to do. That's what they do. They take that responsibility to put themselves at jeopardy to help out others. Yeah. You know, that is, um, you've, you've hit right on the, the very, you know, uh, very nub of this, of this point. When we hear about these people rushing into the building, when everybody is rushing out, don't we all feel um, inside some agreement with that, some understanding uh, that that's right, some respect for these people doing what they're doing. If it's just stupid, you wouldn't respect them. If you have some innate, involuntary, 
not rational, but just some just some very involuntary kind of respect for the for the sacrifice those people are willing to make. The question is, where does that come from? Where does that come from? Um, in you know, checking into this this whole Star Trek thing, I came across another article uh, written by a woman, Carly. Her name is Carly Carly St. George. Just a blogger. Uh, her uh, internet kind of the uh, nom de plume, my geek blasphemy. She's a geeker. Describes herself as a pop culture nerd, Californian feminist, cisgender, silly hat enthusiast, board game fan, whatever. So she likes, you know, writing about things like this. Anyways, so she's writing about these Star Trek movies and this series. Like I said, this this whole question of needs of the one versus needs of the few was played out over three movies. And she says she watched, um, you know, uh, the, you know the first in this series of movies. And she says, naturally, I had to watch the next one. Naturally, I had to watch. So Stock, Spock, Stock, Spock dies. I'm going to start my pronunciation problems again. Spock dies in the, in the first movie in this series of three. Spock dies. Naturally, I had to watch the next one. Why naturally? The Search for Spock is the title of the movie. The Search for Spock. Well, I mean, I was worried. What if they didn't find him, she says. I was worried. What if they didn't find him? This person is possibly dead. And she was worried. She cared for this fictional character. Why? Where does that come from? Um... We have, as you're saying, Bob, this it's the same natural reaction that makes this person worried about Spock as the motivation of these firefighters who ran into this building. Why do they do that? Not to save the building. It's because there's people in there that are trapped that maybe they can help. They cared for those people. It's this it's it's born into us, this this caring for other people. Um you know, I mean, you can find, like, other examples. I mean, don't we all react the same way when you hear a story about, for example, there was a, a ship uh, called the SS Dorchester in uh, winter, winter of 19, 1943, and it had on board 903 tro- troops and four chaplains, and it was making the Atlantic crossing. And, of course, you know, it encountered the danger of, of U-boats, and it was hit by a torpedo, and the ship was going down. And a young GI crept up to one of the four chaplains that were on board and said, I've lost my life jacket. The chaplain said, take this, holding, handing the soldier his life jacket. And before the ship sank, uh, each chaplain gave his own life jacket to another man. These four chaplains saved four of the men, but these four chaplains died. When you hear a story like that. Don't we all just sort of react sort of the same way? Or how about another one? Well, do you, Ray, you, do you feel like the chaplain is a dummy? Stupid. Or do you feel like the chaplain is someone who's a hero? I I hear that story and I think of nothing but love and hero. Stu- Why is he a hero? Right, stupid Why doesn't, is he a hero? Right, stupid Why? doesn't come in. Yeah. Why is he a hero? Is it because, do we know anything about the four people he saved? We don't know about just a young GI. That's all you need to know to still feel this chaplain did an admirable thing. 
Um, there's no uh, logical analysis of well, what's the value to society of the chaplain? What can he contribute versus this young? G- you know, does this young GI have any particular talents or skills? There's no calculation. We know nothing about that person that he was saved, but it, it was a it was a person, and that's enough. Um, you know, take another story. This is a story written by a father. And they're going to a, a mall to do some shopping. And he's got his two kids with him, a daughter and a girl. His daughter was eight years old. His son, Brandon, was five. Um, so his daughter, Helen, was eight. Brandon was five. They get to the, they get to the mall, and they pass by this uh, spot where there's a big sign. And it says, Petting Zoo. And the kids, the kids all said, Daddy, 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 can we go? Please, can we go? Well, this petting zoo is like a, a child care kind of area. And, you know, it's a place where uh, parents can drop their kids off at the mall, in the mall, and then they can do their shopping while the kids play and stuff. And uh, so uh, he says, sure. And he flipped both of them a quarter as he walked into the Sears store. Um, anyways, he's walking towards the Sears, and then... Um, he turned around and he saw his daughter Helen walking alongside him. And he says, well, you know, why are you here? And she says, well, Daddy, it cost 50 cents, not a quarter. So I gave Brandon my quarter. Um, and um, apparently Helen, according to the father, uh, loved cuddly furry creatures. Um, and, um, you know, I mean... This was, and she loved that, you know, more than anyone, according to the father. Um, but he was so proud of his little girl. She had sacrificed something that she wanted very badly so that somebody else could have it, her little brother. Um, you know, if you like that story, why? Is, isn't there something just inside us? And if there is, if there's like a love gene, and oh, by the way, I happen to have a scientific study on the love gene. Here we come. It's going to come in a second. But if we have something like this love gene um, and we don't act with love, are we not acting contrary to the truth? The truth. Is there a truth? Is it, is it the truth that we were made in the image of this all-loving God? And meaning... In the image of love, meaning we're supposed to love. Um, so anyways, um, if you're at all intrigued by my little uh, teaser about the love gene scientific study, here you go. In 2007, uh, a 50-year-old man named Wesley Autry was standing on a subway platform in New York. He saw a man nearby suffer a seizure and fall onto the tracks. There was a uh, an un- the light of an oncoming train appeared, um, leaving his two young daughters on the platform. This Wesley Autry leapt in front of the train, pinned the man to the ground so the train could pass over and save the both of them. When he asked why he did it, he said, "I did what I felt was right." Well, that prompted um, a study by a postdoctoral researcher at NYU, Oriel Feldman Hall. And she wanted to know what motivates costly altruism. 
And of course, they are, when, we, when we help others at great risk to ourselves, what motivates them? Um, she wanted to know whether it was one of two things. Either it could be out of self-interest, a self-interested urge to reduce our own distress at seeing somebody else in trouble, uh, or whether it's true altruism, whether it was, in fact, in fact, a compassionate desire to relieve the other person's pain. Was it to relieve my distress at seeing this or relieve the other person's pain? What, am I, what motivates you more, concern for yourself in some way or concern for the other person? Um, concern for yourself, I don't know if you'd call that love. You could call it self-love, uh, but it's selfishness, or would it be love? So they decided to, to come up with uh, this study. And uh, first, they gave the participants in this study a survey to try to gauge, by their answers to certain questions, gauge how strongly uh, they react with feelings of compassion towards others or whether they did feel stress when seeing others in trouble. And then they gave everybody uh, money. Uh, this, this was done in the United Kingdom, so they used British pounds, and they gave everybody 20 pounds. And um, then, they, um, then they got a bunch of other participants who, well, what they did is um, they told these people, tell you what, if you give a painful shock, an electric shock, uh, to this test subject, you keep the pound. You had 20 tries at this. And so 20 instances where you had the opportunity to give an electric shock to somebody, a heavy one, a mild one, or no shock at all. If you gave somebody a heavy electric shock, you kept the entire pound. If you gave them uh, a mild one, you kept part of it. And if you gave them no, uh, yeah, and if you gave them no shock, you lost your pound. You had, you had to give it away. Anyways, um, then they watched a video after they made these decisions. They watched a video which showed the consequences of their decision. They saw somebody writhing in pain each time they made this decision to give a shock. Um, actually, it was a pre-recorded scene of a person pretending to be shocked or not shocked, so there was no actual pain involved. But, of course, these participants didn't know that. And as they were watching this video and making these choices and so forth, uh, they underwent a brain scan in an fMRI machine. Uh, to track their brain activity. And uh, participants who generally respond to suffering with compassion, um, but, 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 yeah, they then, uh, uh, so, but let's see here. Oh, um, all participants, all of them, showed increased activity in brain circuits associated with empathy. So no matter, matter, matter whether you were acting with uh, com true compassion for the other person or just in an effort to relieve your own distress at seeing somebody in trouble. Didn't matter, for whatever reason you acted, um, everybody had empathy. Everybody, you know, did feel for the other person. Um, okay. Uh, if, and when they're monitoring this brain activity, what they found is the people with the more selfish choices, um, the brain activity showed up in the dorsal anterior Cingulate cortex, okay, wherever that is. Um, 
But that is a brain region that's often implicated in distress related to internal conflict. Uh, so to relieve that, of course, you know, when you relieve that, you'd activate that, that part of the brain. Um, and then, of course, the people that, um, that acted on true compassion uh, activated another, another uh, level in the brain uh, that was associated with feelings of uh, socially rewarding states like maternal love. I don't know how they know what particular areas of the brain are associated with what, but they do apparently. Anyways, the conclusion of the researchers was that acts of costly altruism, self-sacrifice, are more strongly associated with feelings of compassionate concern than motivated by love. Um, and prior research also suggests that compassion isn't a fixed trait. It is possible to increase it and apparently decrease it as well. Um, so there you go. Scientific study that actually stands for the proposition that self-sacrifice is connected to love. It's connected for compassion and caring for the other person. Um, in other words, you know, from a theological point of view, you could say we're made in the image of God. We're made to love. From a neurological, scientific point of view, you could say we're hardwired for it. We're hardwired for it. It's how we're made. We're supposed to do this. So when you lock a little boy, a four-year-old boy, uh, away um, to the point where he's on the verge of, literally on the verge of freezing to death, what are you doing? What are you doing? I, I dare say that if, you know, these people were trained so that they increased their compassion, if they felt compassion, they would have found another way to deal with this possible threat. Given that this boy had a mild cold, they had no evidence this boy had COVID. Um, as a matter of fact, and they later decided, you know, to deal with such cases differently. Um, this is, you know, this is, this is the, way, the reason why they did what they did, I say, I dare say, I submit, is... This idea that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few to such, a, to such an extent that even the threat to the needs of the many. And by the way, the threat, if kids are not, kids are very uh, resistant to any kind of harmful effects from COVID. So what is the threat? Now, this threat to the four-year-old boy was very real. He was, like I said, on the verge of being frozen to death for crying out loud. So if you're weighing these threats simply on a logical level, even that says you shouldn't have done what they did to this boy. You can you can twist things around, Ray. You know, you hear people discussing, and they'll use the term, at least I hear the term, the ends justify the means, right? So I am going to protect these, these other children, and therefore it's okay to cause this boy to go sit out in the cold because I really don't want any of those other children to get COVID even though we don't know that the child has COVID, even though we have no interest in or no knowledge of that, we can still set this little child up in the cold and cause them great harm in the interest of others. And that's not the case at all. The, you have to really think through all the things that are going on. You have to, almost to get in this position, you have to say to yourself, I'm not going to believe that there's going to be 
any harm to this child because you wouldn't do it. You, 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 I, I can't imagine that. So you almost have to fake yourself out and say, I'm not even going to worry about the difficulty this, to this child. It's not great, and therefore I'm protecting these others. I, I just can't imagine anything other than that going through their brain that they just have decided I'm going to block out the reality of this situation because of some foregone thought that at all cost I am going to protect everyone against COVID. I, it's just got to be that 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 that's, crazy. Well, yeah, that that's one explanation. You talk about a you know defense mechanism, a rationalization, a rationalization you know method. Um, another way to, to to get to the same result is to dehumanize the other person and not think of them um, as a person. Not think of them. How about this? Would they have done this to their own child? Would they have done it to their own child? Um, would they have done it to their own child for five minutes? What if the mother hadn't shown up for half an hour? Would they leave? I mean, what if, you know, the teacher at the school was, it was his child. And he couldn't leave the school. So, you know, he called his wife to come pick up the child. And so he puts his own son out in the cold for five minutes. But then his wife still doesn't come. Does he leave her there for a half hour, for an hour? Would he bring his own child in? So why treat a diff- another child differently than your own child? Is there a difference? Maybe you're dehumanizing that other that other that other person's child to the point where they're not as much of a child. They're not as much of a of a real person, a person that calls you to have real feelings. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's one way of doing it. Well, if you're dehumanizing other people, you're not feeling those bonds of compassion that even psychological studies you know show. Um, you're not loving. You're just, you know, I mean, there's a lack of love. Are we forgetting then how to love? If we're wrapped up in this, in these vulcanized, logical, you know, the needs of the many kind of a thing where we forget how to care for an individual child suffering in the cold. Uh, you know, I mean, this is... Um, this is where um, I mean our society is going. There's, you know, there's a, there's a, there's there's a word for this. There's a word for this. It's called utilitarianism. Um, guys like John Stuart Mill uh, and uh, Jeremy Bentham, and even in modern times, Sam Harris, uh, famous atheist, um, have come up and uh, have espoused uh, this idea where. You know, you develop a morality around what is what produces the greatest good, and good being defined as good feelings, pleasure, uh, you know, good experiences, experiences that you like, the greatest good for the greatest number. And what that then means is that individual people have to do what's necessary for the greatest good. And if individual people don't choose to do that, well, then you make them do that. I mean, if you're going to organize a society around the idea that, you know, society is served best when the majority of the people in society are served best, well, you know, I mean, that means that other people have to do what's necessary for that. And if they have to give things up for that purpose, well, then they give things up for that purpose. And so if a little boy has to shiver out in the cold, 
for the good of the other kids in the class, well, he's got to do it. And if he doesn't want to do it, well, you make him do it. Um, well, there's a word for that, too. And it's called totalitarianism. Um, if people don't want to do, if you have a society organized around this utilitarianism way of thinking, and, you know, a good society is defined as, you know, what's good for all these people, and you've got some people in your group that won't subscribe to that. Well, if you believe in your theory, well, you got to make them do it. If that's how your society is built, you got to make them do it. Otherwise, you're willing to say, well, okay, the, the good of the many doesn't matter. But your whole society is based on the good of the many, so you can't do that. So now you make them. And now you're into totalitarian states. And there are consequences to totalitarian states. Um, you know, uh, one, people are dehumanized. When you say you are required, we're going to force you to do something you don't want to do. Um, the way you can justify that is, well, you know, they're one person, and I've, you know, I've got 99 sheep, I've got 99 people over here, i got one person over here. You don't count. So we're not going to think of them as an a, a person that we really need to worry about. We don't really need to feel for them. They're not our son. We can make that person shiver in the cold. Um, we have to dehumanize people to put them out of their mind so we don't have to think about what they're going through. Um, if it was us uh, in that person's position, I mean, no. I mean, we wouldn't. Or the people that, that do go along with that willingly, well, they're, they're the people who believe in love, the people who will say, hey, for the good of the 99, I'm going to do, I'm going to sacrifice myself. The people who willingly agree to that are the people who believe in love. They're not the people who believe in the utilitarianism. If you're a utilitarian person, you believe in what's good for me. Um, they're the people who believe in love. They're the people who rush into those burning buildings. Um, they're the, the people like Maximilian Colby, who you know was willing to die for somebody else. They're the people like those four chaplains on the Dorchester, who willing to die for somebody else. Those are the people. Those people are the ones who believe in love. Um, what's another consequence? Well, you have a loss of freedom. Do you like freedom? You know, do you do you want to be able to do what you want to be able to do? Ain't gonna happen. Um, and uh, so, what is um, you know, and oh, by the way, here's another consequence. I mean, intellectually, this idea of utilitarianism, here's, here's another the third consequence. Um, it has a faulty foundation. It's built on the idea that the greatest good for the greatest number is based on, you know, whether or not the, you know, the majority feel good, whether they've got experiences that they like. It's how they feel about stuff. Well, that's an emotional kind of a state. And Ayn Rand, who famous author of Atlas Shrugged, um, wrote that emotional states are the results of values. They don't cause us to have values. They're the result of values. If something agrees with what we think is good, what we value, um, then we feel good about it. You know, and if we're built for love, I mean, that's why, 
you have these natural reactions. Well, I had a, I was worried about Spock. I, Spock. I had to find out whether or not he, he, he was dead or not. Um, emotional states. If we organize a society around emotional states, we're putting the cart before the horse. You know, the reason we feel good is because of these ideas that we have. And then, you know, if something happens that agrees with those ideas, we feel good about it. Okay. So if we organize a society about feeling good, we're not answering the question, at least not first, as to what makes us, as to what we value, what's important to us. Um, so anyways, uh, so uh, at a foundational level, it, it's built on a wrong premise. And then it has these consequences uh, to it, you know. Uh, so um, utilitarianism, uh, built into this, which is built into the, the calculation that was going through these school administrators, um, is contrary to all these things. So what's the better truth? This utilitarian way of thinking or Paul's thinking about love? Um, you know, this whole idea that, you know, hey, the needs of the one, if we're going to listen to our cultural teacher, outweigh the needs of the many. Um, you know, Ray, we do this in our family all the time. If you really thought about it in a utilitarian way, would you have, right? Would you take that, take that, difficulty of not sleeping, of the burden, the financial burden, all those kind of things. Why do you do that? Why do you have a child? Because you love your spouse, and that love creates that child. It is not out of for the good of, of someone. It is because of love that we do these kind of things. We get married for that reason. We take care of others. We take care of our mother and their father when they're ill. Right? We could go put them someplace where they can be handled, but we don't. Instead, we are with them. We want to be with them. We love them. We take them into our home. We do the things that are, that are there. I, this, this happens all the time. And we as loving creatures of God just constantly have to make this choice. And hopefully we continue to make it with love in our heart and do the right things. You know, and—, and... And if we're going to act with love, um, can we just manufacture that ourselves? Do we need God for this equation? Um, you know, in order to in order to give love, um, you really have to feel love first. If you're going to have the strength to give to somebody else, you first have to have something in you. Um, it has to start with you, and then you can share it. You can't go the other way around and start sharing before you you have or understand it. And in order to be able to have love within you, uh, you got to know what love is. To know what love is, you got to feel love. And the highest kind of love um, is the love of God. Supposing you, you know, I mean, even if you, so even if you believe that we need God's love, can't you just receive God's love and then try to share it? Well, then you're like a pipe. You're just a conduit. You're not doing anything. That doesn't really work. You can't know what love is until you feel it. To just be a pipe or a conduit, you're not getting engaged in it. You can't feel it. Um, and the best way to feel what love is like is to give it. If you love God, if you pray to God, if you, then you begin to feel uh, what it is to love. And you can also feel that you are loved. Um, it's like a locomotive engine. 
You know, you, you take wood, take an old locomotive engine, you take wood, you take some fire, you put them both together, and then what are you going to get? Um, you know, you put water in a boiler, you're going to get steam. You're going to produce the energy that's going to move something from one place to another. Um, you know, it, it loves like that. You know, you've got to take, um, you know, you've got to be able to, to mix things together, uh, you know, and, and just let them react. And then you feel the love. You know, you love God. You feel his love to you. You've got sort of this combustion going on. And then you can, you've got the strength and the power to, to share it with other people. Um, it, you know, can it work if we don't believe in God? I think we've shown on this program that if you organize a society without love, it's going to lead to situations like we've got here where you take this little boy and subject him to something that's going to break everybody's heart when they hear about it. Um, and then further, you know, can we – so if we agree that we need love, can we do that without God? Try to feel how much love you can feel without God. Um, if you can feel God's love, it's the biggest, highest form of love that will allow you to do anything, like Maximilian Kolbe, like Mother Teresa, like St. John Paul II, who forgave somebody who shot him and tried to kill him. Um, to be able to give that high degree of love, you've got to feel a really high degree of love. Well, anyways, that's our, that's our program for today. Uh, we hope you find it a little provocative, uh, a little interesting. Uh, hope you'll join us again. And until the next time, we're going to leave you with a prayer. And to do that for us, I'm going to ask, ask Bob to, uh, to uh, you know, share a prayer with us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, you are love. You are the creator of love. You are the creator of the universe. We thank you for the love that you've given us. We thank you for the fact that you sent your Son, who is nothing but love, to this earth to show us how to act, how to be, how to love. We ask that during this Christmas season, the wonderful season of love, you would allow us to feel this, to experience, to take care of one another without counting the cost, just as your son did. Allow us always to have your love in our heart and have that cause us to make the decisions we need to make, to take care of others, to be responsible to others, and more than anything, to love one another with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. We pray all of this through the son that was born. 2,000 years ago to save this earth, and that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.